Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is episode 35 of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is the fourth installment, I guess we might call it, of my attempt to describe in words the proposed movie that would arise from the screenplay Next American Revolution, which itself was in turn adapted from the novel RPS 2044. This segment from the Hope For movie begins with you seeing Miguel Guevara interviewing housing organizers Cynthia Parks, 50, and Harriet Lennon, 42, in Cynthia Parks' apartment. Posters of John Lennon and Kendrick Lamar look on from the wall. Miguel Guevara says, Cynthia, you watched your family lose their modest home due to unemployment. Do you remember first becoming radical? The scene changes, and you see cops evict Cynthia Parks' mom and youngest Cynthia Parks, who's only eight. Cynthia Parks' mom says, Cynthia, the economy is in trouble. We don't have money to pay bills. The bank is taking our home. We have to move. Youngest Cynthia Parks says, how does that help the economy? Cynthia Parks' mom says, it helps rich bankers. The scene returns to Cynthia's apartment, and the interview continues. Cynthia Parks says, I watched my father sink into alcohol-soaked depression. I watched my mother protect the family from poverty and from my father's illness. I remember ice covering the insides of our windows. I remember resistant mites and vicious lice. I can still see sewage backing up in our toilets in my dreams. Survival was on our minds, not a better world. But by age 12, my life was mapped out, though it was years until I knew who I had become. Guevara asks, Do you remember the start of RPS? Parks answers, I remember when RPS lacked confidence. Who were we to undertake such tasks? Nights of sleepless doubt followed days of stumbling error. Too few people had too much work. Guevara asks, was recruiting hard at first? The scene shifts to her neighbor's living room, and you see young Cynthia Parks wearing an RPS hat talk with her neighbor. Young Cynthia Parks says, join us, fight for a better world. The neighbor replies, why? You don't stand a chance. Injustice always wins. Anyhow, what could I do? How could I matter? Maybe I can make my family more healthy and fulfilled. But the whole building? The whole country? To deny my kids, my family, just to lose? Not me. The scene returns to Cynthia's apartment, where you see the interview continue. Cynthia Park says, For my neighbor to be so defeatist, I felt like it was my fault for not conveying hope. But how could I? Did I even have hope? Miguel Guevara turns to Harriet and asks, Harriet, how did you get involved in housing issues? Harriet Lennon says, In school I met with friends to discuss ideas. We visited Tenants' Rights Group and met many RPS members. I liked them, so I joined. We had two plans. The first was to visit an apartment complex, hear about issues and problems, make tentative suggestions, and help implement modest gains. The scene shifts to a living room, and you see young Harriet Lennon, 20, housing organizer, talk with tenants, the Posners, in their living room. Young Harriet Lennon asks, Would you be interested in swapping apartments with someone from the first floor so that you would no longer have to walk up three flights to your flat? Mrs. Posner replies, For two years, climbing the stairs has devastated my husband and hurt me too. He worked assembly, and his legs are bad. I have tired lungs. It never occurred to me to ask anyone to switch, and no one offered. Young Harriet Lennon says, Society twists us so we take our own and other people's isolation for granted. But when we mention elderly tenants stuck on a high floor, younger tenants on lower floors offer to swap. 
The scene shifts back to Cynthia's apartment, where the interview continues. Harriet Lennon says, We reached out to student tenants in buildings where one or more residents were already in RPS. Next, we approached families. We were modest but eager. We listened. You see a montage of of visuals, apartment organizing and gains. You see tenants paint corridors. You see apartment food co-ops meeting. You see group daycare gathering. You see a meeting about drugs. You hear Harriet Lennon's voice over the visual you are seeing. She says, gains that residents could themselves enact, like painting corridors, revealed potential. Once we built that trust, we helped people set up food co-ops to reduce costs and to reduce time spent shopping. Then we helped organize collective daycare and laundry. It was slow going, but in time people realized sharing could work, and we started holding social events. New friendships formed. Gaining more trust, we began addressing more difficult issues, drug use, alcoholism, sexual harassment, and even spousal abuse. For the first time, people talked publicly about personal violations and worked together to reduce them. We had setbacks. It took time. It was one thing to get folks involved in some very specific limited project. It was much harder to get folks to continue relating after a project ended. But this was RPS housing organizing seeking a new world. The scene shifts from the montage to Cynthia's apartment, where the interview continues. Harriet Lennon says, We next wondered how to provide housing for the homeless. Who would build it? Why would they build it? With what financing? The scene shifts to a military base, and you see young Harriet Lennon talk with soldiers. Young Harriet Lennon says, Instead of learning to kill or how to be a bigger criminal, why can't soldiers and inmates cooperatively make their own decisions while generating a much-needed product? Housing. Soldier asks, incredulous, You want military bases and prisons to construct housing? Young Lennon answers, Yes, exactly. Why not? And to give soldiers and inmates, once they leave the military or the prison, first claim on the houses they help build. The scene shifts back to to the apartment where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks Harriet, Going a step back, when did you become radical? What caused it? Lennon replies, At 19, in community college, I heard progressive talks about racism, sexism, and global warming. I was sympathetic, but I was more into music, movies, and social media. One night I was talking with a friend who turned out, to my surprise, to be very radical. The scene shifts to a community college dorm room. You see young Harriet Lennon and a college friend with Beyonce and Angela Davis posters looking on from above. The college friend says, The Wall Street march was great, but we obviously need more, including on our campus. Young Harriet Lennon replies, Come on, that will never happen. The college friend answers, Why not? Why assume indignity? Why endure harsh circumstances? Why not seek change? Young Lennon responds, I take for granted harsh circumstances because the world is harsh, and thinking it doesn't have to be is deluded. I am not cynical. I am aware. The college friend says, As a biologist, would you assume cancer was incurable at the outset of seeking health? As an engineer, would you assume a bridge can't span a river at the outset of trying to connect cities on either side? Why do you assume oppression is forever? Why do you favor failure? Do you fear success? The scene shifts back to Cynthia's apartment, where the interview continues. Harriet Lennon says, Was I jaded? Did I always see the social glass half-empty? In a semester, my roommate turned me from aggressive cynic to cautious optimist. I joined RPS. Miguel Guevara turns to Cynthia and asks, Cynthia, what drew you to RPS? 
Cynthia Parks replies, My family lost its home when I was eight. People I knew lost theirs too. You see a visual montage. You see a family of five living in a two-room ramshackle apartment. You see a family plunged into anger, despair, alcohol, and opioid addiction. You see families and organizers fighting house evictions. The scene shifts back to Cynthia's apartment, where the interview continues. Cynthia Park says, At times I had rats for roommates. I felt incredible tension and saw unforgettable violence. Life was seriously harsh, but as I got older, I met folks devoted to preventing evictions or to helping evicted families find new homes. Experiencing housing activists helping people and real estate developers and bankers evicting people decided my life. Guevara asks, and turning toward RPS, Parks answers, Housing organizing required empathy. We had to be aware. We had to be confident. We had to utilize means at hand to seek attainable ends. We had to be patient with people, but impatient with institutions. RPS was a good fit. Guevara asks, what about personal difficulties joining RPS? Parks answers, activists I first encountered had lots of education and were comfortable and appeared confident. They expected rural folks who looked, dressed, and talked like me to defer to them. That made me unsure, hurt, but also angry. Luckily, some folks tried to not just welcome me, but to learn from my ways of relating. My redneck activist friends who used gun culture to reach into rural communities horrified some lefties, but taught others new ways to reach out. Seeing that made me realize I could and should contribute. The hardest part was arousing from others, and even from myself, having allegiance to something larger and beyond the immediate moment. The scene shifts to a hospital office where Miguel Guevara queries Mark Feynman, 52, in a nurse's outfit, and Barbara Berthune, 50, in a doctor's gown. A medical poster on the wall features the quote, Do no harm. Miguel Guevara asks, Mark, can you tell us how you first got heavily involved? Mark Feynman answers, I went to the first RPS convention as a working-class nurse hostile to doctors' elitism. I doubted the convention would even address my concerns, much less elevate them. The scene shifts to an auditorium, where young Mark Feynman addresses doctors and nurses. A sign above him reads, Welcome to the First RPS Convention. Young Mark Feynman says to the audience, from a stage, We nurses hate bad health care. We want better, but we also want respect. You doctors have your power and income at our expense. It's got to stop. Is that a priority here? The scene returns to the hospital office where Guevara Feynman interview continues. Mark Feynman says, At the convention, we celebrated our emergent program and formed Healthcare Workers United to organize medical workplaces and to win broader health policy reforms. We investigated and learned about hospital finances. We attracted support and initiated positive campaigns. But before all that, we held some sessions and invited doctors to one. The scene shifts to an auditorium at the convention, where a speech continues. Young Mark Feynman is saying, We respect your work, but we feel you are overpaid, overprotective, and overly hostile. Do you really think you deserve more income status and power than us? A young doctor shouts from the audience, Damn right I do. Can you repair a heart? Can you breathe life into a dying child? I can. You can't. I should earn more. I should have more say and more status. I mean, really, isn't it obvious? How can you think otherwise? Young Feynman stares at the young doctor and answers. 
You ignore that our different tasks and our different life circumstances give us different means to attain knowledge, which in turn enforces our differences in income and power. I know many of you doctors, like lawyers and managers and others with empowering work situations, sincerely believe you are properly empowered and rewarded. I know many of you really believe we workers are dumb, parochial, and should be grateful. Many of you really feel workers should join a movement for a new society, but not make decisions. We should help you dump the old boss for you to become the new boss. You should lead, we should follow. You should order, we should obey. And you know what? Sometimes we nurses even doubt that we can handle empowered work. Sometimes we accept that we deserve less income and say. Or, if we are not submissive, sometimes we furiously want doctors out of RPS entirely. Even worse, sometimes we get so angry we get baited into denigrating knowledge and skill. But other times, like now, here, we see we must eliminate class division not only in hospitals, but throughout society. We see we must involve doctors, lawyers, and other coordinator class members in RPS, but without letting you dominate RPS. We see ourselves and all workers empowered. A large doctor calls out from the audience, If you are right, why don't more nurses say so? Young Feynman replies, Because we have families to feed. Because you work us ragged. A better question is why lots of us do publicly address these class issues. It's probably because our jobs aren't as successful as most working class jobs at disempowering us. We are subordinated like other workers, but we are less socialized into accepting our plight. Still, even once we become aware and active, we don't want to antagonize doctors into rejecting change, so we often put a lid on our feelings. What is your excuse for keeping us down? A short doctor calls out from the audience. I read progressive media. I don't see this concern. Is it just you? Young Feynman replies. You don't expect mainstream media to question private ownership because it would violate the owner's interests. Similarly, in alternative media, coordinator class rule by those who are empowered gets ignored because our media is run by coordinator class members like you, and due to background, experience, and material interests, they, like you, ignore these issues. The scene shifts to a hospital office where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks, Mark, what pushed you to ever broader radicalism? Mark Feynman replies, General class anger and also insights about race and gender played a big role but so did my daily circumstances. How often could I silently see the effects of pollution, monopoly-priced care, paternalistic doctoring, and bullet wounds? How often could I timidly address overdoses, obesity, hunger, and addiction? How often could I abet overuse of antibiotics and partake of rampant hospital and pharmaceutical profiteering and not become activists? I hope you will agree that we have come to another reasonably good stopping point for today's segment of the next American Revolution screenplay. Would you like to see it, improved by director and actors, on a big screen? Can you imagine that? If so, and if you like that prospect, why not write me for a PDF of the screenplay to pass on, with info about the podcast and with your kind words? That is the path toward moviedom for next American Revolution. Perhaps you can help make it happen. I hope you will consider that possibility, and I hope you will also consider helping to support Revolution Z at our Patreon page, www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Revolution Z. Next time, in just a couple of days, we'll have another installment from Next American Revolution. Then we'll have a vision episode of Revolution Z, and on to next week. I hope I can get rid of the cold that has been clogging up my nose during this cast. If not, we may have a little delay. 
So for now, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time, and for Revolution Z.